0: Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Carla Nappi, your host. I just finished talking with Per Castle about his wonderful new book, Grounds of Judgment, Extraterritoriality and Imperial Power in 19th Century China and Japan. And that's hot off the presses with Oxford University Press in 2012. Now, this is a book that is focused on a very rich and very deep case study um, in the context of transnational 19th century history, but it's also a book that as you'll hear from the following conversation has very wide-ranging implications for the way we think about and practice multi-sided and transnational or sort of transnational or international history on a local scale It's a book that includes not just very helpful discussions and very provocative questions about what it means to talk about the law, what it means to enact the law, um, and understanding that that's not a unitary monosemic concept in different places and times, but it also includes some fascinating and really amusing um, and and very educational case studies, including um, the opening uh, account of a Swedish businessman who publishes an announcement in the North China Daily News through to homicide cases, forgery cases, cases of um, sort of international murder when somebody farts in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we didn't talk about that in the interview, But that's something that you'll get if you actually, when you actually pick up and read the book. Um, It's a wonderful book. We had a great time talking, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Pear. Hello. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Pear Castle about his recent book, Grounds of Judgment Extraterritoriality and Imperial Power in 19th Century China and Japan. Now, this is not only a study of a very crucial period and phenomenon in global history, so this is relevant to not just East Asia, but really global history, as we'll um, talk about later on in our conversation, but it's also very methodologically interesting. So, I'm really thrilled to talk. With you today, Pear. Welcome and thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Well, thank you too.
0: Could you start us off by saying just something, um, just a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to this field um, and to this topic in particular?
1: Uh, First of all, I'm I'm born and uh, educated in Sweden, and that's where I started to study Chinese first. And uh, then my interest in language and history brought me first to China, then to Japan, and then later to graduate school in the United States. And it was really in graduate school about 12 years ago that my sort of interest in combining language, uh, combining the findings of New Qing history... Uh, and combining uh, the recent um, gains, I would say, in, in, in legal study into some kind of study of the treaty ports, which is something that has always fascinated me. And another motive was also that I wanted to bring Uh, Japan into the narrative of uh, the treaty ports and extraterritoriality because usually when you look at the literature on extraterritoriality and the so-called unequal treaties, it's either China versus the West or Japan versus the West or China versus Japan. And uh, very few studies have tried to sort of integrate um, these three areas into some kind of triangular uh, relationship, so th- those were the kind of impulses that I started on when i when i when I formulated my 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 dissertation topic that later went into this book
0: great, and as we'll um, get to, I hope later on in our conversation and i 'll just mention for our listeners who haven 't yet had a chance to read the book, though I hope they will after um, listening if they haven 't already, um, one of the things that the book does really um, exceptionally well is sets up an argument. For thinking about 19th century history of East Asia, not just in a kind of teleological um, context of reading back from the current boundaries of nation states into the Correct. 19th century, right, but by situating it in a longer um, diachronic narrative localized in um, the Qing and earlier and um, uh, Japan and earlier. So it's, I think um, it, it does that really effectively, and, and that's something that I think we'll talk about. So, Per, this is a first book for you, and congratulations. I know it came out recently. Can you talk a little bit, um, for the benefit of our listeners, about the transformation in going from the dissertation to the book? Were there any major transformations? What was the process like for you?
1: Well, uh, there are a number of things that you need to do uh, to go from a dissertation to a book. Usually when you write a dissertation, it is to, uh, first of all, for a committee, uh, and then also for your peers in the field, people that are interested and very kind of ready in on the topic to, to understand your argument and to see what sources you bring, what new kind of arguments and methodologies you bring to the table. And uh, it's usually the, the challenge will be, uh, first, of the gaps. There are always things that you need to uh, do more research. I had to go to the National Archives uh, in the United Kingdom, there are also um, transformations where you will have to articulate your own argument, and, and that was one process that uh, uh, I went through with my editor, where she was repeatedly asking me, "Well, you know, this is what you know your secondary source says. Uh, is that really necessary to include that in your book? Can you rephrase that in your own in your own words? And when you do that, when you rephrase." Uh, someone else's argument with your own words in contact with your own primary sources and your own argument, then uh, things start to happen. And in my case, things that I, I I started to think about on in general was questions of nation-building, uh, uh, what role does citizenship and subjecthood play uh, in nation-building, and what is the relationship between that and extraterritoriality. And we will, of course, talk about that in more detail later. What is the nature of law uh, in China? Uh, when we use the word law in the West, does it really cover the same area as, as we would uh, uh, think in the, in, the, in the Chinese case? Uh, and also broader questions. What, what is a foreigner? What is a foreigner in China? Who is a foreigner? When does a foreigner become Chinese? Um, uh, is it racial? Is it questions of uh, certain ritual types of behavior? Uh, and um, of course, uh, the, the, many of these questions came along uh, the writing process, and I, I kind of sometimes just rewrote a paragraph and felt that perhaps hmm, that's a, that's a that's a paper at the next conference, or that's an article, or perhaps a new new project. So this is this is the kind of the trajectory you go through, and then of course. When you write a book, you will have to make sure that it ends where it begins. That you really deliver on uh, what you set out uh, to um, uh, to to give the readers what and and set up very very early. You have basically two or three pages uh, in in the uh, in, a, in a book manuscript to capture the, the imagination of the reader, and then introduce into something that you think is interesting and hopefully the reader. Uh, uh, will find interesting and then establish the major themes very clearly, very explicitly Um, and then at the end you will have to to wrap that up and give a kind of uh, pointers where you want to go in the future and and in so doing you you will rethink things that you uh, that you were very uh, that you thought that you had very firm ideas about uh, in the beginning of, of, of writing the book so uh, I, I would say that that some of the chapters are, are quite radically rewritten, others are are adapted to the uh, to the kind of the framework as set up in the in in the, um, in the sort of uh, writing of the introduction and, and uh, conclusion.
0: Now, you mentioned something really interesting in the acknowledgements, and I wanted to um, ask you about this mostly for the benefit of junior faculty, and I I read this and thought, wow, that's a great idea, and I don't know if I'm interpreting it correctly, so I'm going to ask you. You mentioned in the acknowledgements that there was a manuscript workshop um, in 2009. What was that, and um, can you describe what that was for our listeners? Because in my mind, I'm imagining a workshop that's devoted to you and your manuscript. Is that the case? And if so, how did how did you work that out? Because I think that's a fantastic idea, if that is in fact what you meant by a manuscript workshop. Uh,
1: you're correct uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, and it's part of the uh, kind of departmental culture of the history department at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor uh, to provide uh, junior faculty on the tenure track with an opportunity to discuss uh, their book manuscript in whatever gestational stage. It's in together with two invited um, uh, uh, colleagues that are invited and flown in, and then it's 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 an afternoon uh, where uh, these two um, external readers, but they're there in person, so You know who they are, and usually you you um, you ask for you know who would you would like to come, and they will go through your book. They will sometimes present criticism or points in writing. Uh, and then usually after that they they've done that uh, uh the floor opens for a discussion with interested faculty and it can take many different formats um the workshop is set up uh with you uh, i mean with with the chair in, you know in consultation with the chair of the department and uh all faculty members that I've been with in in Michigan in my same kind of career track have, have done the same and it's usually then when you know the book title comes up or or you realize wow you know i'm dancing around this topic perhaps should I address this much more uh, closely but it's also uh, a, 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 an occasion for you sometimes to stand your ground and and explain to people what the book is about and, and what it's not about and and um, it's kind of a you know, a second defense, <laughs> mm-hmm. or or a um, you know um, a preparation for for other times uh, types of reviews that you will will go through. So yes, you're correct in in, in interpreting this as, or, or I mean, in understanding this as a a, a a a workshop organized by the department for junior faculty.
0: What a fantastic idea! I just wanted to mention that because I, three cheers for University of Michigan for and your, for your department for implementing that. I, I wish. Um, everybody um, had the opportunity to do that. That's a, just absolutely fantastic. So, okay, now that I'm done, <laughs> i going on about how wonderful that is. Let's get into the book itself, um, which is a fantastic book. And um, it, it just, like I said, it has, I think, many wide ranging implications um, both for your field and also well beyond it. So first things first, let's start at the very beginning. This is a book about the history of extraterritoriality, among other things. So for listeners, who may not have ever heard that word or understand why that's important to 19th century history can you briefly um, explain that concept what is extraterritoriality and why um, why is it important why should we care about that as um, historians of this period and beyond
1: well extraterritoriality in brief is the projection of one jurisdiction's laws uh, or one uh, the, the, is the projection of the laws of one country and, and the procedures of one country into the territory of another country through people. So for instance uh, if an American in uh, 19th century China uh, committed a crime or was sued uh, uh, for in a lawsuit, uh, he could only be answerable to his own authorities, that would be the American Consul General Uh, or it would be a consular judge. uh, And what this implied was that the law followed the person rather than the law followed the territory. So when you crossed uh, a territory, it didn't necessarily mean that you were under a different uh, uh, sort of jurisdiction and another system of law. And on paper, of course, this principle is very simple. Uh, it is often called. Um, it's often a consequence of what we call personal jurisdiction, that the law follows the person rather than the territory. But on paper, uh, in, in reality, this is far more complex because if you have a country like China, uh, that in the 1840s, 50s, through the 60s, concluded treaties with you know a dozen countries, uh, all having their own formulation of extraterritoriality, it became very complex because these treaties not only regulated the relationship between the chinese uh, and uh, foreigners from various countries but also the relationship between foreigners on chinese soil and as long as uh, you know extraterritorial people people following the laws of another country live in restricted areas called uh, treaty ports usually these things can be resolved ad hoc uh, but uh, as, you know, Chinese uh, or China's interaction with the rest of the world became more intense and uh, Chinese politicians and Chinese statesmakers and intellectuals wanted to build a nation state uh, with one sole uh, law, body of law governing all people uh, in the territories that they claimed for China. This, of course, became a problem, and an obstacle in in nation-building. And that is why we should care about this, because every time you, for instance, talk about any type of law uh, that would have consequences within the borders of China, say international law, human rights legislation, or copyright law, uh, even civil law up to a certain extent, Uh, these things actually resonates against this experience uh, of extraterritoriality. And and the very word extraterritoriality just means something that's beyond the territory, beyond the territory, and it's a word that came into use rather late Uh, in the game so did that explain your question or do you want more precise formulation
0: that's great no that that's wonderful and i think the um because in some ways the whole body of the book um, looks at and follows through the different um, ways that this seemingly simple concept right plays out in very complicated ways. i think there's we'll also expand on this in the remaining time but that's great now the argument here is going to be, and we'll we'll get to this at least in part, that China and Japan had very different experiences in abolishing extraterritoriality in the 19th century, and so the, um, these this we'll, we'll get to this um, in time. Now, one of the things that I want to ask you about, you've already mentioned um, in our brief discussion so far, and you also mentioned at one point late in the book that your perspective is informed by um, something that's often referred to as the New Qing History. Can you talk for us a little bit um, about the ways that this approach to Qing history has shaped the way you wrote the book and the way you understand these issues?
1: Well, uh, New Qing History was a, I think it was coined by Joanna Whaley-Cohen. I also think that Kent Guy wrote a a review article where he mentioned that word uh, roughly around the year 2000, and it was a, I mean, it's a term that people today are a little bit, reluctant to use. But but what it used to mean uh, was the scholarship that emanated from the insight that uh, the Qing Empire, as we now prefer to call China before 1912, that the Qing Empire uh, was a multi-ethnic empire, uh, that it was an empire which had a number of different polities, different legal systems in force, and that fact that the ruling elite uh, of the Qing Empire was mainly Manchu, partially Mongol and also uh, a certain group of, uh, of, of Chinese in the banner system. And the fact that the banner system and the Manchus existed does matter uh, uh, to the way we should understand uh, Chinese history and that we, ch- we should be very careful, for instance, in thinking that, uh, that Tibet or Xinjiang or Mongolia are related to Beijing or related to the rest of the sort of Han Chinese lands of China in the same way as they do today, uh, and that is one of the major insights of New Qing history, I, I would argue. And also, as a consequence of that, um, uh, the, the, the languages we will have to use. Uh, to approach new Qing history uh, will uh, be more than just Chinese Chinese or the type of Qing kind of administrative Chinese that we're taught in, in graduate school. You may have to learn Manchu or at least be conversant in Manchu. You may have to understand how Mongol or Tibetan works. Uh, I would argue that perhaps uh, you know, English, French, uh, Russian uh, Japanese are also part uh, of, of that um, concept. If we accept the idea of John King Fairbank that the Qing Empire after the 1860s was, was kind of run uh, as a joint uh, venture between Manchus, uh, Chinese statesmen, uh, and, and foreign diplomats, so it's 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 a kind of a calling into question uh, what I mean what what China actually is uh, to what extent China today. Is uh, just a successor of the Qing Empire, uh, and once you start to ask those questions, uh, things like extraterritoriality, things like uh, the treaty ports, um, a number of institutions don't look the same uh, as they do uh, uh, when when you when you sort of pre- assume that the present People's Republic of China or the Republic of China earlier is the only natural outcome of, of this very rich, uh, uh, culturally rich uh, and, and complex Qing empire.
0: Thank you. Now you mentioned um, later on in the book, and, and we'll get to this, that the Treaty of Tianjin, one of the many treaties um, that the book chronicles the development and operation, or, or lack like thereof, of, of between the Qing and Romanov empires was the last treaty to have a Manchu language version. Because you also bring up Manchu elsewhere in the book, can you talk a little bit about, um, coming from your comments on the new Qing history, the importance of of Manchu language sources um, to your work in this book in particular? Did you find that they were um, important uh, for this history? Did they change anything? Um, Did you find yourself working with Manchu sources very much for this? Or was it not a body of uh, material that was central? Or how did that work? So, Manchu language.
1: <laughs> well, the Manchu language uh, is, is one of those, uh, it became one of my obs- obsessions in my first year in graduate school when I, when I started to study it under uh, Mark Elliott and Jim Bolson. And, and it, I mean, Manchu, I think any person doing Qing history should learn Manchu because even if you don't use sources in Manchu, it will actually change your thinking and the way you look at, 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 at the Qing Empire. But in my case, uh, Manchu was mainly used, I uh, mainly used Manchu for understanding treaties. Uh, I uh, did read uh, the Treaty of Nerchinsk, the Treaty of Kyarta, in the original Manchu version uh, in graduate school. I also did take... Uh, uh, did take a look at paragraphs when there was uh, Chinese and a Manchu version or a Chinese uh, Manchu a Manchu uh, and a Russian version, and compared uh, the terminology uh, and uh, This was useful because, for instance, certain terms uh, that that are of importance in the book, uh, for instance li shi, which which just means to manage business uh, in Chinese. Uh, in uh, the Manchu version, um, within the context of, of, of a judicial subprefect, as I call it, uh, it's called Weili uh, Bedere. That means the crime punishing or the crime trying uh, uh, subprefect. And then uh, the Manchu often brings out uh, more kind of clarity. Uh, in that sense that, that the Manchu sometimes had to make things more explicit which so was mainly in terms of understanding treaties and sometimes question certain assumptions about how people have understood the treaty. Uh, one example of that is um, uh, the uh, interpretation by a prominent uh, Chinese legal scholar Wellington Gu or Gui Jun who made a very strong argument that in order to understand the Treaty of Kyta You have to have read the Chinese version. The problem with that argument was that there was no Chinese version of the Treaty of Kjarta in 1727. There was a um, a Manchu version, Uh, there was a a Russian version, and I think a Latin version. And all other subsequent uh, iterations of that treatise have been translations, very good translations. Uh, but uh, they were not done, uh, you know, informed by translation theory, uh, so there were gaps and, and slippages, and, and um, I kind of corrected some of those assumptions that he made in, in when it came it came to the trial of people who had absconded across the, uh, the the Russian Chinese or the Romanov Empire Qing Empire sort of borders.
0: Now, this actually brings up a, um, an issue that I wanted to mention, um, and that's something that I think makes the book, even if the title doesn't seem like it would explicitly indicate this, um, I think the book is of profound interest to people interested in translation studies. Because one of the points, um, again, stemming from your what you just told us, I think, very helpfully about Manchu and Manchu language sources, one of the points that's consistently raised in the book is the importance of language and terminology, right? So, Specifically, the importance of legal and political terms in the context of treaties, and also the importance of translation or sort of interpretation of terminology as a medium of legal reform. I mean, this is actually—I um, was—I was. I was Pleasantly, because I'm interested in translation, but I was very surprised um, as I read through the book how often um, this really this set of issues is really foundational to the history of diplomacy in this period and of extraterritoriality in particular.
1: Yeah, I mean that 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 brings in the relevance of 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 Chinese uh, into into the study of extraterritoriality because. Uh, if you go back and um, and do a, a a search, a WebCat search on extraterritoriality in China, most of the books that you will find uh, are in English, French, or, or or German, and the most of the books that you will find in Chinese uh, will use those very books in European languages uh, to make very kind of high stakes argument about the nature of the system. So, in a sense, they're perpetuating Western assumptions of superiority uh, in China, and What happened to me when I went into the archives, especially when I went to the diplomatic records office in Tokyo, um, was that I found that almost all correspondence between uh, Qing diplomats and Japanese diplomats, whether it be in China or in Japan, was in classical Chinese. And, and of course, administrative Chinese is its own special kind of dialect or sociolect of the Chinese language, where every word has a definite... Uh, meaning and the type of classical Japanese that the Japanese are using is its own dialect, too. Uh, and many of the sort of words that we assume uh, came into existence um, after, you know, that this wave of translation coming back to China after the sign of Japanese war in 1895, many of those terms did not exist. So, for instance, when the Chinese would say, uh, extraterritoriality. He would not use the word that, that we have imported from Chinese, Chi Fatuan, or He would use the word, uh, which means not under jurisdiction. Um, and I, I could go at, at, at great length explaining why this matters, but Uh, suffice it to say is that the Japanese did not always understand what the Chinese meant uh, by their terms and the Chinese were sometimes scornful of these neologisms and the reason why this is important is that if you know if we think of the defeat of the Qing Empire in 1895 as a foregone conclusion uh, then of course um, this is just a parenthesis uh, and and something that, that we could forget about but people at the time did not know that uh, they were informed by their own understandings of, uh, of their own legal, legal system, of, of how to try inter-ethnic uh, cases, how to understand law, uh, how to invoke law uh, when it was unclear which uh, body of law that should be used. And, and all of, many of these things hinge on, on terminology. And uh, I, I, I had sensed a certain dissatisfaction when, when I had read otherwise very good books uh, on the treaty ports, um, that seem to assume that English, you know, you know enter uh, Sir Harry Parks and, and, and all the other British, you know, uh, consoles. And they, when they enter into the picture, the English language reigns supreme. Well, perhaps in the newspapers uh, in the treaty ports, but certainly not among officials. And for British officials to be able to make an argument to Chinese officials, they had to use Chinese. Um, So if we don't understand what the terms mean, if we don't understand the context in in which they're used, if we don't understand the afterlife of those terms, many of them still exist, uh, how can we understand the Chinese legal system and how can we understand the contact, the interface uh, between uh, the Chinese legal system and the uh, foreign legal system, which extraterritoriality actually constitutes?
0: Yeah, this actually gets us to um, some—it gets us further into the book, and it gets us to some really interesting aspects of the work, issues of sources in particular, and such as the. importance of press accounts um, and of legal documents to the work, and also, um, in a related fashion, the significance of cases, case Mm -hmm. studies that emerge from these documents as forms of evidence. So I want to, if you don't mind, ask you about these briefly in turn. Um, Can you talk about, first, the role of newspapers and press sources for the book? And I ask you this because this seems to be um, a significant aspect of the argument later on um, in terms of the rise of the popular press and the relationship. Um. Of international communities, right, in China to the press seems to have significantly impacted the story. So, this isn't just a, a matter of, you know, I read all these press accounts and mm. got a different perspective. It really seems that the nature of this as a material source really helped shape uh, the story that you're telling later on. So, would you mind talking about that for a little bit?
1: Well, that's a very good question, actually. It's the first time someone asked that question there about the use of the press at, at two different levels. I mean, first of all, uh, like many uh, China historians or China Japan historians, you know, you're a little bit reluctant to use uh, English language sources from the time of the treaty ports, you know, New, New North China Herald and or China Daily News, because they're kind of colonial and they are sort of informed by kind of the Shanghai Lander mind. Um, and it was rather late, actually, into the work of my dissertation, I started to look at them and I, I discovered uh, first that. They are full of translations of Chinese documents that no longer exist. Uh, uh, and many of the people that translated and, and, and wrote these accounts were very well informed about what was going on in the Chinese-speaking world. Many of them read Shenbao, Bao, the major Chinese-language newspapers. Uh, many of them read the Peking Gazette. So... Uh, the English language press and the Japanese and the Chinese treaty ports are kind of communicating vessels with the Chinese and the Japanese language press in a way that I had not, um, uh, I had not expected. And of course, if we read Barbara Mittler's look on, on Shanbao, that is, uh, of course, uh, a, a trajectory or a line of argument that, that she explores further. So I realized that this was a goldmine. Uh, to um, sometimes cross-check accounts, because you would sometimes have a Chinese partisan account of a legal case, then you would have a Japanese partisan account uh, of a legal case, and then you would have an English-language account. And by, by looking at how they describe what happened, how they uh, use legal concepts, uh, how they invoke international law—you uh, could get a more nuanced, I wouldn't say a fuller picture, because it's a little bit like a Rashomon uh, uh, complex at play. But but it, they, they're they're much richer than than than, than I'd expected. And, and one thing, just as a parenthesis. Um, I, I went to Shanghai this uh, summer, and I sat down in, in the Zikawe uh, Library in Shijiazhuang and looked at these things in, in, you know, the read paper version. And I discovered that it seems that uh, the treaty port press in the 19th century was much more informed about Chinese affairs than in the 1920s and the 1930s. You would find extensive tech, like uh, uh, use of Chinese characters in the in the um, uh, in, in the in the text itself, and, and they seem to have uh, employed much more sinologists in the 19th century than in the 20s and the 30s. So that's uh, at at one level. Then the second level is of course uh, the fact that the press is, of course, never neutral. It always uh, is pushing its own agenda. It's not necessarily a national agenda. It's about selling newspapers and and uh, and uh, uh, sustaining public interest in the story. Uh, and one thing that, that, that struck me was that uh, the extent to which the, the press, for instance, in Japan, has shaped uh, our understanding of extraterritorial cases, there are a number of landmark cases that took place in place in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, that shaped uh, the Japanese understanding of the unequal treaties, and has become almost folklore. Uh, you know of, of of abuse of of, of consular jurisdiction, and, and then I was looking at the Chinese press. Uh, there was you know tons of even worse cases. Um, that never have seemed to have carried the same kind of uh, uh, carried the same kind of weight, or, or have you know the more more or less uh, kind of local events when you have steamboat accidents um, and, and murder cases that I relate that don't seem to have attracted interest outside of the treaty ports. And what it seems to be at play here is 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 the role of the press in Japan is shaping a kind of a national uh, audience. Um, and, and extraterritoriality being in a sense a soft target uh, for for nation building because it involves law, it doesn't involve uh, building schools or warships. And and uh, in China in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, although people certainly did mind uh, uh, foreigners uh, going rampage, um, uh, pr- pr- you know, protected by privileges, the issue didn't have the same resonance in the press. Um, and and that, 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 that made me start to think about, you know, like how careful we have to be using these sources for making any larger arguments about nationalism and, and, uh, and, and the shaping of, of, of public opinion. So, did that answer your question? Or?
0: Absolutely. And it, it's a great example of what I was mentioning before when I said um, that this book um, has, I think, wide ranging implications for how we think about historical methodology, not just um, for the content. And along those lines, you just mentioned law. So I want to just ask you briefly about another set of sources that emerged as, at least from the perspective of a reader, is central here. Now, one of the arguments that you make early on, is that even the actors in your story had to engage in reading documents that could be very, very intricate and complex? These are legal texts, in order to engage in contemporary debates about extraterritoriality. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your own use of legal cases and documents. Sort of how did how did your reading of these documents impact um, your, your sort of the story that you were telling? And how did you Uh, encounter these kinds of documents? Where did you find them and how did you find reading them um, for this purpose?
1: Well, the easiest part, I think, is, is learning to read them, like, on a purely sort of technical level. I mean, uh, as long as they're not written, in, 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 they're not handwritten. I mean, there are, uh, in, in, in Japan, extensive uh, holdings of, of cases that are microfilmed uh, with Chinese and Japanese. In China, there are fewer of them, or they're less accessible, but they're also published. Uh, 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 sources that, that you can use, and there are manuals. So th- th- it's, it's, in that sense, a, a a relatively open terrain. The problem, of course, is when, you know, if you, if you only study Chinese law, or Qing law, as I would prefer to call it, on its own terms, uh, then, of course, as long as, as... Because everybody knows what they're talking about, uh, there are certain silences, there are certain things that are assumed that will never be articulated. But when you have a conflict of jurisdiction, when you have, say, for instance, a Japanese policeman arresting a Chinese and killing him in the action for for using opium, um, then, of course, both the Chinese community and the Qing consul and the Japanese authorities have to go back to the treaty that they signed uh, very hastily uh, a decade earlier and figure out okay uh, was a crime committed um, under, under what law uh, you know was the Japanese police officer you know exercising his duties or was he infringing on the privileges of, 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 of a Chinese uh, national in his home uh, so they have to articulate on the basis of the treaty what they actually mean um, and, and that's where things become tricky because uh, a lot of things that, that we assume, are are self evident? Are not self evident? Uh, uh, for instance, um, most of the cases, most of the treaties that you read would say that if a person from country A uh, commits a crime against a person of country B, he will be tried uh, according to his own laws. Well, what is a crime then? Is it you know like for instance, um, is, a, is a you know are are, are, are crimes something that, that would be uh, that, that, that is criminal in your own country uh, but not criminal in the host country or things that are criminal in the host country but not your own country, how do you deal with those things? And, and the treaties are silent on that point. What they seem to suggest and what people came to the conclusion was uh, that um, you were still uh, subject to the laws of the countries where you lived Even if you had extraterritorial privileges, but you were supposed to be punished in the mode of your own laws by your own officials. So it didn't give you a license to kill or a license to drive on the wrong side of the road or, you know, shooting firearms in the countryside and all these kind of things. Uh, uh, But still, you know, there was a tremendous sense of indeterminacy. Behind extraterritoriality, and it didn't always benefit the people it was supposed to benefit. So what you see um, in, in 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 the case record is that every time you have like a, a court record, if you read in North China Daily Herald, the first thing they would do is to dispute the r- jurisdiction of the court. And they would say, no, under this paragraph in this treaty, uh, uh, this case has to be tried in the consular court of that country because they have an interest in this case. I sort of suggest that we resume the proceedings in that consular court. Um, So there's a tremendous sense of indeterminacy of law. uh, And uh, this is not helped uh, by the fact that China and Japan are, are going in very different directions. Um, China does not start really seriously to reform or, or sort of adapt its legal system to, to Western models until the 1890s, uh, whereas Japan starts, you know, from the late 1870s, early 1880s to reformulate the their system. So the very content of, say, criminal uh, uh, criminal procedure for criminal law, the very content of what is supposed to be regulated by the treaties is a moving target. So, consular jurisdiction in 1870 is not the same thing as consular jurisdiction in 1880 or in 1890. And people are painfully aware of that. Uh, and There are a number of cases, you know, I, I think I cited at least once or twice in the book where people say, we don't really know what type of legal privileges the Chinese community in Japan have. And, and certainly not, they don't have the same privileges as Westerners. So um, yeah, that, that that opens a a a number of questions. What what is actually law? I mean, is, is is law what people make up on the spot uh, and and enforce in court, or is it something you know more transcendent than that?
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Now, this actually, um, you're, you're talking about the distinctions and the differences between what's happening in China and Japan gets us to um, into the rest of the book. And in particular, the first chapter does something that the, the book is very notable in doing, and that is um, it, sort of, it has an explicitly trans and transnational focus. Now, what this chapter does is it charts the history of legal pluralism in China and Japan. And for simplicity, I'm, I'm seeing China and Japan here Um and this is—I won't go into detail, except to say that what legal pluralism means is um, is very complicated, and you go into um, quite a bit of detail in the book in explicating um, the juristic and social senses of that, and talking readers through what that means. Now, when you look at Qing China and also Tokugawa and Meiji Japan in this chapter. Can you talk about the ways, um, th- looking specifically at Qing, at the Qing context? that the banner system shaped legal pluralism in the Qing, because this seems to have been really crucial um, for what comes later and gets to an important distinction that, or an important phenomenon that recurs throughout the, 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 the book, even into the last chapter, and that is the way that Manchu and Han identities were negotiated. So with the banner system, how was that important, and how did that shape um, legal pluralism in the Qing?
1: The Manchus in China, and, and of course the allies in the banner, in the eight banners, the Chinese, Mongol, and Han Chinese, uh, uh, bannermen, they were under under their own jurisdiction. They were living in segregated residential areas, uh, and they could only be tried uh, by officials uh, from the banner system itself. And in every case, there was a. a suit or a legal suit between a bannerman and a civilian uh, or a manch or a Chinese, if you going to simplify a bit, uh, that had to be trialed uh, by a, a, a civil official and a, a judicial official, sort of in, 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 in uh, 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 sort of uh, in, in, in kind of a, a mixed uh, proceeding. Uh, and, and this, of course, was only one way you would have uh, legal pluralism in China. You would have other types of Mixed jurisdictions in Mongolia and Xinjiang uh, and, and, and Tibet. Uh, but uh, w- what I wanted to say is that already prior to the entry of, 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 uh, of foreigners into China, you do have a much more fragmented uh, legal system than uh, people usually would admit uh, there was. And, you know, um, when, when you have to sort of integrate or deal with this thing called extraterritoriality, you basically have two choices. Uh, one is to add a new layer to the already existing system uh, of, of legal pluralism where you have different ethnic and social groups under, uh, under different jurisdictions and often under different laws. Uh, the other alternative is, of course, to reform uh, and create a uniform citizenship uh, within your own country, to abolish all kind of internal distinctions, and then, in so doing, making the distinction between foreigner and citizen sort of ridiculous and an impediment for for uh, a nation building and from the point of view of Qing statesmen um, you know as much as they did not like uh, foreigners uh, in the treaty ports and they did not like the system itself, um, for them to mobilize. Against extraterritoriality would require a regna negotiation of uh, the relationship between ruler and ruled, between Manchu and Chinese. And they were not, certainly not in a point that they could afford to do that in the 1860s and, and, and the 1870s, just after the uh, Taiping War. And it's not, uh, it's not until the late 1890s, early 1900s, when first you have the at least so it seemed a successful Japanese model showing that by creating a unified ciz- citizenship and and a kind of a uniform body of laws uh, would make it possible to get rid of extraterritoriality. Uh, it was not until then they started to address the need of legal reform and and it's not a coincidence that you know in the uh, petitions that that people uh, um, sort of outline uh, or chart out the, the, the trajectory of, of, of legal reform. One of the first things they had to do, deal with was uh, the distinction between Manchus and Chinese. And, and they even make a statement in one of these memorials that in order to complete constitutional reform, we need to make Manchus and Han equal. And constitutional reform uh, in, say, 1905, that's code for treaty revision, because that's what it's really all about.
0: Thank you so much. Now, you make, a, you make a point here in this chapter, and I mention it because this is going to be um, important later on as well in the book, um, in contrasting this with the situation in the Tokugawa and then the Meiji. So how briefly, if you can, how did the Tokugawa um, and later the Meiji legal situation differ in broad strokes from what we see happening in the Qing case?
1: I mean, initially, uh, the Tokugawa response to uh, to the Qing is, is uh, I mean, it's not that different from the Qing. I mean, they they assume that extraterritoriality means uh, foreigners living in segregated areas um, where you minimise contact with with the local population and where you know uh, consular courts cases or mixed court cases are are, are tried ad hoc. Then, of course. Uh, one of the reasons that the Tokugawa shogunate falls uh, only a decade or so after the conclusion of the first treatise is that the the kind of the foreign relations was one of the raison d'etre of the Tokugawa shogunate, and their inability to restrain the treaties became undermined uh, the very idea of, of the shogun being this sort of the uh, first among, um, among equals, among the feudal lords, and, and when... Sovereignty, or at least formal sovereignty, was uh, uh, transferred to the emperor, and and a nation state um, was created. And and the Japanese started to abolish uh, uh, the uh, the status system. They started to abolish, you know, the samurai as a class, and um, transformed them into a modern nobility. Uh, then extraterritoriality became an impediment for a unified nation state, which is, you know, the model. What you know, that was what what you did in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. You created unified nation states. So it's really a, a question of different trajectories, and also the uh, the 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 fact that Japan undergoes a very drastic regime change. In, in the 1860s which China does not and, and it's so doing and I mean and, and you could you could in one you can turn the table for a little bit in saying that uh, the the the, uh, the Tokugawa state failed and the Qing state succeeded uh, in surviving uh, the treaty ports much longer mm-hmm.
0: thank you now, now we from this background, which is again going to, for our listeners, going to become important um, uh, we're going to continue to be important later on because of, in fact one of the arguments here is that is going to be that Qing officials um, in part worked from and adapted long standing legal concepts from this earlier history and helping establish the kinds of courts and technologies of negotiating extraterritoriality that come later. Now the next chapters focus on, the, the next two chapters focus on the Qing, and chart the evolution of jurisdictions uh, over foreigners from the late 19th century through the Sino-British Chafu Convention of 1876, and sort of looks at unequal treaties, the importance of Linzi, Shu, and Opium as a turning point, and the emergence of a most favored nation clause in treaties that will, again, continue to become, um, or to continue to be important later on throughout this history. Now, the chapter three looks in particular at two courts in Shanghai, um, which is, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. Now, one of the kinds of courts um, that you talk about is, is the idea of a mixed court. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the idea of a mixed court. And the reason is one of the really surprising things that comes out later on in the book is that um, even though we're talking about the Qing here and the Qing looking to um, models for mixed courts, what we'll see later on is that Japan, when it's looking to um, sort of uh, come up with its own idea of mixed courts, is looking to Egypt um, for a model of how they might reform the system which is is really fascinating. I think for a lot of readers this establishing this link between Japan and Egypt is going to be very surprising and, and perhaps quite inspiring as a, a future direction of research as we move forward. so can you talk a little bit about um, mixed courts and sort of what are these different models that are being used in the Qing and in Japan and is was this surprising to you to see this distinction
1: well, uh, I mean, first of all, a mixed court is is a either an ad hoc court or a you know a fixed uh, court with a fixed place where you would try cases involving uh, people or subjects from more than one jurisdiction. So the mixed court in Shanghai was set up. Uh, in the 1860s um, primarily to try Chinese residents of Shanghai that that had committed crimes against foreigners or committed crimes that were of interest to the foreign community and also to try foreigners that were not represented by any treaty or any treaty power. And, And since Shanghai became a majority Chinese city uh, by the 1850s, 1860s, this became the major court. You know, To to go to court in Shanghai in the international settlement, if you were Chinese, was to go to the mixed court. That was more or less the, the, the major court. And the, the consular court, the Supreme Court that was set up uh, uh, in conjunction with this, was only concerned uh, when, when British were, were, were prosecuted for crime or, or had to enter into civil suits. And when the British started to negotiate this idea of a mixed court. Of course, they had their own idea, which they had brought with them from from commercial courts and from a, a type of court that the French had called the Tijara, the commercial courts in, in, in North Africa and also in, in the, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and uh, the Chinese, when they uh, sort of were faced with these... these um, uh, they thought of a mixed court in the sense that you would have, uh, in, the, in the Chinese case, with two equal judges, more or less, uh, sitting in together, uh, deciding the merits of the case and, and deciding on, 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 on the punishments. Of course, the foreigners were never willing to cede a jurisdiction of a foreigner to a Chinese official, so it was a kind of a halfway solution. The mixed court in Shanghai became a mixed court only as so far as it could prosecute people of Chinese origin but never foreigners. And the Chinese unsuccessfully tried to transform uh, the, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom in Shanghai into kind of a counterpart. They could do the same uh, to British subjects as, as Britons did in the mixed court in Shanghai. And in the case of Japan... Uh, they were, of course, watching this uh, when the first Japanese came to Shanghai in the 1860s. Uh, they they witnessed uh, these institutions, and, and for them, China was a kind of a laboratory case of what they did not want to be, uh, and... Um, They very quickly opted for, you know, wanting to conclude treaties with China on the model of the British and the French and and the Germans. Uh, But the Chinese prevailed, and and in the treaty that China and Japan concludes in 1871, uh, the mixed courts uh, that are enshrined in the treaties are equal mixed courts, if you want to put it that way. It meant that Chinese and Japanese... Uh, when they were involved in, in criminal suits, would be tried by Chinese and Japanese uh, officials in conjunction. And this, of course, runs totally against the Japanese idea uh, of, 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 of of exercising uh, sort of exclusive uh, territorial uh, jurisdiction within its own uh, territory. So the Chinese model was, was off the table, you know, even though they had to accept it under treaty after 1871. But the Japanese started to think, like, how do we make the Americans, British, the French, the Prussians uh, to uh, sort of agree to, to to treat the revision. And one kind of model of a different form of mixed court they found in, in Egypt, which was, of course, the same mixed court that that Westerners had been, had been, um, had been thinking uh, about initially. And they were much more limited in scope. Uh, uh, they mainly tried civil suits and certain commercial cases, Uh, and um, uh, the Egyptians themselves were not particularly happy with these courts the way they operated and and actually told the Japanese if I'm not mistaken that you shouldn't emulate our model either uh, uh, because what it means is that you will give the foreigners a foothold in your legal system it will be very hard to get rid of the foreigners later and and later in the 1880s when some Japanese legal reformers are tentatively suggesting that perhaps we should have foreign co-judges uh, in our courts perhaps we should emulate the egyptian model uh, of of mixed commercial courts it it, it creates an outcry because the, uh, the the press and and also the the movement for civil rights in japan uh, and citizens rights uh, is is in full force and um, uh, they they demanding a parliament and and so on and so forth this is completely sort of unthinkable uh, so what is interesting here is that that the for, for the japanese they they are they are uh, in trying to cope and understand what they have been sort of forced to sign uh, in the 1850s, for them it's natural not to go to China. Uh, it's natural for them to go to the, to the, uh, to the other European colonies, and in some way they sort of identify uh, uh, with, the, with, the, with the colonial uh, powers. And um, their experience, both with China and also with what they saw in Egypt, was that a uh, mixed court is not the way to go, and any uh, form of f- foreign voice in the Japanese court was not to be permitted I and mean, that was more or less the consensus uh, in the uh, 1880s and the, the, the reason I stumbled on this was actually because of a colleague in, in, in graduate school, Jamila Dean who, who, who wrote a book about um, uh, Pan-Asianism and he pointed me uh, to these articles and um, I, I think there is still more to to be found there
0: Thank you so much. Now, we, before we um, bring this to a close and I sort of ask you some closing questions, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. So what I'll do is just mention a few things for listeners and then ask you um, to talk about something briefly that's in one of the final chapters. So for listeners, the, the next chapter um, switches its focus to Japan. Um, and looks at sort of again takes a comparative approach to understanding treaties by comparing an extraterritorial, a set of extraterritorial arrangements in um, different sorts of treaties, arrangements that Japan made with Western powers and the Qing respectively. Um, it sort of mentions the importance of the the, dip, the the distinction in how many Chinese were in Japan at this time, which is vast numbers compared to how many Japanese were in China prior to 1895. Then um, there's a really wonderful chapter, Executing Extraterritoriality, which analyzes a series of criminal cases in China and Japan um, that were prosecuted, and these include homicide cases, um, but they also include cases um, like counterfeiting Japanese paper money, cases involving opium, um, cases involving whether Nagasaki police could enter the homes of foreigners, um, and it's, again, really, really interesting stuff. Okay, so because I would love to to keep you for another hour and ask you all kinds of things. But in order to respect your time, what I want to ask you to talk a little bit about before we sort of start to bring this to a close is something that happened in the final chapter in chapter six, or the final one before the conclusion. Now, this is a chapter that looks at the ways that legal pluralism and extraterritoriality contributed to shaping the public debate in China and Japan in the last decades of the 19th century. Um, but one of the notable things here that you mention is the importance of the year 1895 as mm. a watershed year. Okay? This was not just because 1895 was the year of the abolition of Chinese extraterritoriality in Japan. But also, importantly, and this sort of moves us forward into what might be a really interesting other um, future research direction, this was also the year of Japan's acquisition of Taiwan. And you make a point here that this is actually really interesting for the history of legal pluralism and Japan, because although Japan at this point abolishes legal pluralism internally— it creates a legally pluralistic regime under colonial conditions. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because that seems both very important for, this study that, for your study, but also very important in reminding us that um, where we find Japan and what we think of as relevant to law in Japan does not just exist under current nation-state boundaries um, as we understand them today. So, so would you talk about that a little bit?
1: i mean uh, first of all uh, i mean I, I think this is a very good question um i'm happy that you asked it and and, and, and first of all one of the points i try to make i think both initially in my book and also in the in the conclusion is that that China is, in a sense, both a colonizing power and a colony, uh, like a colonial power, at least in terms of its Western territories, and is, an, and is an empire and wants to be an empire. And on the other hand, it's also on its literal frontier uh, a colonized power. It's it's actually subjected to Western forms of uh, of, of of colonialism, and, and one inherent part, of course, of colonialism, uh, in any form or imperial rule. Uh, is to figure out i mean who who to pay, how to pay taxes, how do you levy taxes, how do you measure land um, how uh, um, you know what is, a, 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 what is legal title to land and who holds it and how can it be transferred and how do you resolve disputes uh, in the community that you 're ruling over uh, how do these people understand crime you know what type of punishments are they used for? And and all these, of course, are integral to the technologies of imperialism because most imperial powers realize that if you just go in and you know um, steamroll your own system, it's it's never going to work. So they they, they, they and, and this is really in this connection that you get legal anthropology uh, starting. You know, legal anthropology that uh, invented the very term legal pluralism, uh, pluralism is in, in Dutch, I think, uh, in, in Indonesia and. What the Japanese do in 1895 is going from a position where they have to adapt to the West, uh, whether they like it or not, in order to preserve uh, their national sovereignty, Uh, They go from that position, a semi-colonial state, to becoming a colonizing state. Uh, and in so doing, they will have to start to get interested in Chinese law. Like, prior to 1895, uh, China, Chinese law is only really interesting to, you know, Sinologists, to historians. And it's not really something that has any political connotations for, for the political debate in Japan. After 1895, of course, they will have to do all the states, all the things that the Qing states attempted to do in Taiwan, and they will try to do it better. So what do they what do they do? They will have to collect legal materials. They will have to collect archives. They will have to interview people um, in villages and in communities. What what their customs are and and kind of create. I mean, I'm very uh, uh, emphatic here. They have to create a, a customary law in the sense that they they create a snapshot of what they find through their informers and and to make that into a to a colonial regime. And then, of course, most legal pluralist system has the kind of the end game of, of most legal plural regime is, is unity is to go from accepting local laws and custom and then to go towards uh, unification. And one product uh, uh, of that effort is that the Japanese produced manuals um, and anthropologists and, and sociologists created manuals of, of, of uh, Chinese customs in Taiwan some of the best archives, local archives uh, that we have from the Qing dynasty uh, are um, uh, are a consequence of these endeavours to to chart uh, uh, Taiwan, sort of both temporally and and, and, and spatially, and, and for similar reasons. Some, one of the reasons why we have local archives surviving in, in Northeast China, uh, former Manchuria, is of course to get the colonial state uh, of Manchu quo. So the existence of the archive itself is 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 a, a product of, of of colonialism, and. Uh, I mean, uh, this is yet another direction uh, of of, of um, thinking about legal pluralism and thinking about how the Japanese applied that uh, in Taiwan and in other colonial territories.
0: Well, Per, thank you so much for talking about, with us today. Now, there's a lot in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, even though we've, we've, I think, had what I've I've really enjoyed talking with you about this so far. Is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention or point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it? Oh, uh, I, think,
1: I think one of the most interesting things to research and, and to think about was the uh, cases in Shanghai and, and in Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's um, it's it's kind of making international history local. I mean, these are not really high stakes pieces, uh, except perhaps the the riot in Nagasaki with with, with Chinese sailors or Qing sailors um, fighting with, with local inhabitants. But these are kind of international law in a local context. It's it's international law where uh, all of a sudden you know long term residents of Nagasaki and Shanghai. Uh, would claim to be experts on uh, international law and it's it 's kind of a state uh, of affairs where you know where you have this almost this british notion of of the um, of the amateur um, uh, that, that 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 you have all these state proclaimed experts on on what should be uh, Chinese law what should be uh, constitutional jurisdiction and what how japan uh, should be and had I had time, and, and uh, um, I, I could have written another two chapters about this, There are a number of disputes, uh, a number of interesting everyday events uh, where you cannot only chart, you know, legal customs and social mores, but uh, you know, get get much closer to uh, to life in Japan. And, and in that, uh, uh, in, and in and in researching, especially Shanghai, I was really helped by this historical atlas that a. Um, a Japanese um, a scholar, I think he's a professor of literature in, 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 in Kyoto, Tokyo, he produced and showed me what houses exist now and what houses have gone. So I actually tried to go to each of these places. <laughs> wow. See, I, I went to that department store, you know, where the mixed forts used to be, You know, stared at it. I went to one of the crime scenes and realized that the, the lane is gone, you know, but at least I tried. <laughs> Uh, so uh, kind of exploratory uh, sense um, you know that um, and, and I tried to I, I, I put a little bit of that in the footnotes for for those who, who like those kind of details exactly where is this place and how does it relate to another spot so uh, that, that, that i would I would strongly suggest rereading that chapter <laughs> That's
0: great. so now that the book is out, and again, congratulations, what's next for you what are there any projects that are particularly inspiring you um, right now? I'm,
1: um, you know, kind of mode now. But, you know, when you're hearing reviewers and and, and um, looking through your book and see if there's anything you missed. But uh, on general, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm pleased with the book. Um, uh, there, there, I have like two projects uh, on top of my head. One uh, is to explore uh, the concept of political loyalty. Uh, in, in my first chapter, I state that. Uh, that uh, you know the idea of the ordinary subject standing in any kind of ritual obligation to the state was very relatively weak in China, and the idea of sovereignty as strong, as we would say was not really present in the sense that we would think of it today with loyal. Uh, subjects, and, and um, I discovered a number of, of normative documents, such as the sacred edict, that intersperses actually legal cases, <laughs> which is what I like to read, uh, Intersperses legal cases and codes to show, you know, if you don't abide by this norm, this is what happens. But none of these norms that they tell people to uh, obey talk about the the only time where the emperor actually enters into the narrative is when he's the big teacher of Confucianism. Uh, so that is something that I'm, I'm, I'm working on as part. parent. The second thing is, uh, I want to study more treaty ports. Um, uh, I want to discover more archives. Um, I already have been to another treaty port, uh, been charting some territory, and... Uh, uh, and now that the North China Herald has been put online where you can do full-text searches, um, you know, the, the, the sky is the limit. So um, political loyalty and then um, to continue with with, uh, with uh, uh, treaty ports.
0: Great. Okay. Well, thank you again so much, Per. It's been a pleasure. The book is fantastic. It's given me a lot to think about, and it was really generous of you to take the time to talk with me about it today. So Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for being with us, and we'll see you next time.